Sometimes people ask me, uh, David, if you weren't a pastor, what would you do? What else would you do? And uh, I mean, I would, if I wasn't a pastor, I would be a professional athlete, of course. That's my number one choice, but that, that would require me to be athletic. So realistically, if I wasn't a pastor, I think I, when I was in high school, actually, I was very interested in law. Uh, and then God, God redirected my heart into full-time ministry, uh, local church full-time ministry, I should say. Um, but if there's one thing I find myself very interested in, it's advertising. I, I love that world. I, I love the world of creating slogan, slogans and campaigns and putting things together. And I find advertising very interesting. And one of the things that's interesting about advertising is that they're never just selling uh, a product, are they? It's not a product they're selling. They're always selling what you're going to get as a result of using their product. It's not, some, it's not they're selling a product, they're selling the result of the product. So for example, they're not just selling a drink, they're saying if you, if you drink this drink, then all of your remarkably in-shape friends and you <laughs> are going to be on the beach every day throwing a frisbee around and having a great time, right? So you see that and you're like, I need to drink that drink because I need that in my life. Some people think, uh, some commercials say, if you wear this cologne, then the ladies will literally throw themselves at you. Here's the result that comes. Or if you drive this car, you will be magically happy and the roads will part in front of you. you know? And so you, you, you have this promise of something that comes with something. And what, what advertisement's basically saying is that if this is true about you, then this will be true also. How many of you have learned it doesn't really work that way? You can buy the cologne, you can drink the drink, you can drive the car, and it turns out you're still you. If this is true, then this should be true also. This morning, we're in our second to last week in our series through First and Second Thessalonians. And we're now into Second Thessalonians, which was, which was written shortly after First Thessalonians by the same man, Paul, in the same place, Corinth. And again, he's writing it to a young church that needs teaching and direction. And in this passage, what's interesting is that Paul is essentially saying to the church, to believers, to you and me this morning, if this is true about you, then this should be true also. If this is true, then this should be true. And what he's doing is he is assuring the Thessalonians of their present blessings in Christ, but also the future hope that they have because of Christ, because of what's been done for them. But he's also spelling out what the results should look like. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Because this happened in your life, this should happen in your life. And I don't know where you're at this morning in your faith journey, but for some of you this morning, it's probably this, this that you need to pay attention to. Has this actually happened in your life? But for others of you, it's maybe this, this. This has happened in your life, but is this happening in your life? So let's look together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to read to you, um, actually we're going to start in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and then we're going to actually read into the next chapter. You know, the chapters and the verses were added later. When, when the Thessalonians read this, none of these numbers were here. So we, we can't get too distracted by it. So we're going to read from 2 into 3. But let's look together. First, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and to believe in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 
Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And let's go to the next chapter. We'll read the first five verses. Finally, brothers, he's wrapping up. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. For we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What we see in this passage is that God has established us in something, but also God has established us for some things. Let me say that again. God has established us in something, but God also has established us for some things. So let's lean into this together. And the first thing that we're going to see this morning, if you're taking notes, is this, that God has established us in the gospel, in the gospel. He says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, which is how the Spirit grows us, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through what? Our gospel, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it so evident in this passage, isn't Paul making it so clear that this is God's work, that God has established you? This is God giving, doing work on our behalf. And that's why at the start of this passage, Paul says, we give thanks to God for you. Paul recognizes we're not just, we're not crediting you for even who you are. We're crediting God for who you are. It's, you know, parents, sometimes you want to take credit for your children, right? Every now and then they do something spectacular. <laughs> and it just kind of keeps you going another day. Every now and then they do something kind. They do something generous. They do something loving. And you're like, that's my child. And you want to take credit for that child. And then every now and then they do something else. And then it's your spouse's child, right? <laughs> I tell Aaron, that's your, that's your child today, right? We don't want credit for it. Paul is not giving the Thessalonians credit for their lives, which is in some circles a little offensive, especially in America, because we're sort of like a self-made people where we get the credit for who we are and what we've done, and we've worked so hard. It's the American dream. And Paul's saying, no, no, the kingdom of God, you don't even get credit for the quality of your own lives. We give thanks to God for who you are because it's God's work. And then he calls them something very interesting. He calls them the beloved of the Lord. Paul we know this from other passages. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember the Jewish people? They traced themselves all the way back to the 12 brothers, and there were 12 different tribes, and the youngest son was Benjamin, and Paul is a Benjaminite. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, 12, there's a very specific blessing that Moses gives to the Benjaminites, and the blessing that Moses speaks over the tribe of Benjamin is that they are the beloved of the Lord. And it's just for them. doesn't mean that God doesn't love the other 11 tribes. Of course he does. But this was a specific phrase that was designated for the tribe of Benjamin. And here's Paul, a Benjaminite, who's quite actually proud of his heritage and his legacy that he's leaving, what he calls the Thessalonians, which are mostly, by the way, Gentiles. He calls them beloved of the Lord. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, the blessing that is mine in Christ is yours. It's not his to give but he's recognizing that God has given in it, that God has established the Thessalonians in the gospel. 
Now, it's so hard, I think, in our nature for us to believe that God has established us. Because if you think about it, we spend most of our lives trying to establish ourselves. Every new situation we walk into, right? First day, new job, you go in, wearing your best, acting your best, doing your best. Why? Because you want to establish yourself on day one. Uh, kids, first day at a new school, you walk in there, you don't go in looking like, you know, you just got out of, like you go in, you, you spent time that morning getting ready, you've been thinking about what you're going to say, because you want to establish yourself. Maybe the first time you play a sport with new people, you go out there and you want to prove that you know what you're doing, because it's in our hearts, it's in our nature to establish ourselves. And the gospel comes along and says, you can't establish yourself, but God has established you in the good news of Jesus Christ. And here's what it means, that God alone can bring the blessing that you and I need. Because in all of our efforts to establish ourselves at work, in relationships, in sports, in art, in music, in fashion, wherever, in all of our efforts to establish ourselves are ultimately attempts for us to get the blessing that God has already wants to give to us, which is the blessing of hearing you are the beloved of the Lord. You're loved, and he's established you. We can't get it for ourselves. We can't get it for someone else. God establishes his people in the gospel. One of the things I want you to notice in this text that we just read is that at the beginning, Paul emphasizes that each person of the Trinity, right, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they each have a part in establishing us in the gospel. It says that the Father elects. He chooses. He chooses us to belong to him. Number two, it says that the son loves. So the father chooses, the son loves, and the word love that is always associated with Jesus is, is often different than the word love associated with God the Father. The word love that is often associated with Jesus in Paul's writings is an, a love in action. That Jesus, with his life, with his death, and with his resurrection, he loved you. So the Father elects, the Son loves, and then he says it's the Holy Spirit who makes us holy. And to be holy doesn't necessarily mean that we are the most moral, upright person in town. It means that we've been set apart for God's purposes, for his plans. The Father elects, the Son loves, and the Holy Spirit makes us holy. I hope you're getting a sense on your heart this morning that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, look at the work they've done to establish you in the gospel. Just this text alone, look what it says. Look what it says God has done. You're loved by the Lord. You're chosen by God. You're saved by God. You're sanctified by the Spirit. You have eternal comfort and hope. You are established in every good work and word. He, he is faithful to his people. He, has a, he will establish you and guard you against all kinds of evil, and he will direct you to his love and to the steadfastness that is found in Christ. Listen, if God is doing all of these things on your behalf, who can stand against it? Who can stop God's desire to establish you and then Paul goes on to say, hold on to the traditions that we taught you, whether you heard us teach it or whether we wrote it to you. And what Paul is saying is really important for us to understand. He's saying the traditions means that this is not something that we just made up. This was handed down. How many of you had Thanksgiving traditions? Some of you? Two of you. How many of you had Thanksgiving traditions? More of you all of a sudden, right? So Thanksgiving traditions, that whether it's eating turkey or ham or stuffing or, or, or what was in your stuffing. And a lot of you have Christmas traditions. And these traditions get handed down and handed down. And Paul is saying this truth of the gospel is not something that sort of we plucked out of the air, but it really happens and it was handed down. Do you know that when Paul wrote this letter in Corinth, it was only about A.D. 55, Jesus had only 
died, been buried, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven, seen by 500 people, it only had happened about 20 years earlier. It was still fresh in their minds, in their mind's eye. There were people still walking around who saw Jesus. People who Jesus had healed, people who Jesus had raised from the dead were still walking around. And that tradition and those stories were being passed down. And so isn't it good news to our hearts this morning that God has not just established us in a theory, but God has established us in a factual, historical, historically verifiable events, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller says the resurrection makes Christianity the most annoying religion in the world. The resurrection makes Christianity the most annoying religion in the world, and here's why. Because Christianity is not a philosophy, although it informs a philosophy. It's not a worldview, although it shapes a worldview. It's not a philosophy or a worldview that you ponder over to pick and choose the bits that you like. I like this part about, I lo- I like this part about God loves me, but I don't like this part about having to love my enemies. I like this part about God blessing me, but I don't like this part about being generous to other people. So I want to pick and choose. Christianity doesn't offer you that because the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes it an open and closed question. Did it happen or did it not happen? Is it true, yes or no? See, we like to think as humans that we can discover truth and we're on a lifelong journey of discovering truth, that we can work out which bits we like and how they fit into what we want. But Christianity says you don't discover truth. Truth is not a thing. It's not a theory. It's not a belief set. It's a person. And he discovered you. And he came after you. And the work that he did for you, you are established in that work. And Jesus will give us, and he is giving us, eternal comfort. In verse, verse 16, let me say one more thing and we'll get to our second point. In verse 16, Paul said, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, listen to this, listen to the, listen to the verb tense here, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that seems odd. I feel like it should say that, that, that God will give us, future tense, he will give us eternal comfort and hope. But it doesn't say future tense. It says past tense, which means there is a here and now experiencing of the eternal comfort and hope that someday we will fully enjoy, that God has given you eternal comfort. So whatever circumstance you walk through, you don't just have to look forward to heaven to someday say, someday I'll have eternal comfort, but there's a sense in which the Spirit of God wants to give you comfort now, here, now. Well, what kind of comfort? And Paul David Tripp, who writes this wonderful devotional called New Morning Mercies, In commenting on this passage, he talks about the word comfort. I thought this was so helpful. I want to read this to you. He says, what is that comfort that God gives us? It's not that he will make sure that our hopes and dreams are realized. How many of you realize that by now? God's comfort is not making sure that you get your way and that all your hopes and dreams are realized or that our bills are promptly paid, that people around us like us, or that we escape sickness and suffering. His comfort, listen, is more foundational and redemptive. And and here it is. Despite our sin, our great sin against God, despite our sin, you and I have been welcomed into an eternal relationship with the Lord Almighty because Jesus fully met all the requirements of God that we failed to meet. We no longer have to fear God's wrath. We no longer have to measure up 
in order to achieve his acceptance. We no longer have to hide in guilt or shame. We are God's forever and ever. He will never turn his back on us. He will never angrily throw your sin in your face. He will never withdraw his presence and his promise, no matter how much we continue to struggle, because our standing with him is not based on our performance, but on the perfect record of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if your heart could wrap itself around that truth, the comfort you would experience, the rest, he has established you in the gospel. You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ, united with Christ, covered by his righteousness, established in the gospel. And then Paul, in all of that, includes this little phrase, which will transition us to this next point. He says, you are the first fruits. What does that mean? You are the first fruits. What it means is this. These Thessalonians who are reading this letter from Paul, they are the ones who first experienced the grace of God and who God first established in the gospel through the ministry of Paul. But Paul's saying it's not going to end with you. The work of the kingdom, the work that God does in people, it should never end with you. If it ends with you, you didn't even get the first part right. And this is where we're going to shift now. Remember I said, if this is true, if you're established in the gospel, then this should be true. So what does it mean? The first fruits means that others are yet to come. It means that what God does in you, he wants to do through you. And so now let's get to our second point and our third point. We've been established in the gospel, but secondly, we've been established for good works. See, sometimes when people hear about the gospel and they hear what I just said for the last seven to eight minutes, they say, oh, well, if it's all God's work, then I guess this is great news for me because I can just sit back and do nothing the rest of my life. Live however I want, be the person I want to be because God did it all and I don't have to do anything. And if that's your hard attitude, then you don't understand the first thing about what God did for you. You don't understand this. If you think this is not required of you, then you don't understand what was done for you. And once you realize that you've been established in the gospel, not on your performance record, but on Christ's performance record, now established for good works, you say, of course. Of course I am. There's an old, old movie telling of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain to, to sacrifice him to the Lord. And right before he lays him on the altar to sacrifice him, uh, Isaac looks at him um, and says, is there nothing he can't ask of you? And Abraham says, no, nothing. Now, that's not in Scripture. Don't go looking for it. That's, that's the movie. But the truth is powerful. Abraham has this sense that once you're established in the gospel, secure for eternity, full of hope and life and truth that you don't deserve, what that means is on this side of your life, there's nothing he can't ask of you. Oh, yeah, but not to, not to suffer. Not to have to bury a loved one. Not to have to struggle with a sickness. Not this, not that. There's nothing he can't ask of us because everything we have is by grace. You know, Martin Luther said this. He said, we're not saved by good works, amen? But we're saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. And Luther also said, God may not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor does. Your coworkers do. Students, your classmates do. They need you to do something in their lives. And, and, and Paul says here, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, comfort your hearts. And look what he, what he says in verse 17. And establish your hearts. God wants to establish your heart in every good work and word. 
The evidence in your life that you've been established in the gospel is the good works. Now, we don't do the good works as a means to prove ourselves or earn something or deserve something, but we do it as a worshipful response. You know, in my house, we have very strict rules about when Christmas celebrations begin. We're a Thanksgiving-loving family, or at least there's a Thanksgiving-loving dad in the house. And so we have hashtag respect the bird, right? We're going we're gonna to respect Thanksgiving. We're going to give it its day. About eight, ten years ago when Black Friday began to creep into Thursday night, I was so grieved in my heart. And no, I'm not judging you if you're out in line Thursday night, but I, we are a respect the bird. Thanksgiving comes first. So what happens is the day after Thanksgiving, it's like Christmas throws up in our house because the girls have been waiting and waiting and waiting. And so now the music is on and the tree's getting set up and we're watching movies. And yes, on Friday, uh, on Friday we, we, we watched a movie on Netflix, a great new animated movie called Klaus. And it's sort of this like telling of like where Santa came from. But it's, it's anyway, it's this beautiful story about this man and his, his desire to bless children and overcome stuff in his life. But the, the main character, Klaus, he said something during the movie that really resonated with me. He said to this other character who was a little bit selfish, he said, a true selfless act always sparks another. A true selfless act always sparks another. And in this movie... The kids in the town were learning that if they were on the good list, they got toys, and if they were on the naughty list, they didn't get toys. And so they started living good, but they weren't living good because their hearts had been changed. They still were pretty selfish. They had just found a new way to be selfish. Now they were being selfish by behaving, where before they were being selfish by not behaving. And there are some times where our good works are actually still very selfish. We're behaving, but we're doing it because it will make God love us more. It will secure his blessing on our lives. It will make other people approve of us. But the only, the only way we break free of, the, free of that cycle, because we can't do it on our own, is if a true selfless act sparks one in us. What is the truest, most selfless act that's ever been done on the face of this earth? Christ walking to that cross and taking the punishment that you and I deserve. And so if our good works are going to be selfless, because often they're selfish and sometimes they're a mixture of the two and there's grace, there's grace for that. But if we're going to do selfless acts of service, it's going to start by our hearts have to get a spark. We have to be sparked by seeing Jesus and his selfless act on our behalf. If you're doing good things to save yourself or secure yourself, you aren't doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself. But if you've been established in the gospel, it sparks your heart so that you've been established for good works. What good works has God established for you? Who are your neighbors? Who are your coworkers? Who are your classmates? Who are your friends? Who are your family members? Who are the people in need that need your good works? They're out there. If you've been established in the good news, you've been established for good works. Last point this morning. We've also been established for a life of prayer. It's interesting, in this passage, did you notice, maybe some of you felt the tension? There's a lot of emphasis on God's sovereignty. Some people don't like the word elect. Some people don't like the word chose, and you can wrestle with that and do whatever you want with it. But Paul used it, and clearly God is a dominant role in our salvation. So some people think this, well, if God's electing and choosing and sovereign, then why, why pray? You ever think that? If God already knows what's going to happen, why would I even begin to pray? You know what's beautiful about this passage? On the heels of that amazing declaration of God's work and sovereignty, Paul transitions to this in the next chapter. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Here's what I love about this. This is what I think it teaches us, and it's helpful. 
Paul sees no conflict, no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humankind. It's not an issue for him. It's not a theological battle for him. He believes fully in the sovereignty of God, but he also asks passionately for other people to pray for him. Right? So sovereignty doesn't lead to passivity. Believing that God's in control doesn't mean that we stop praying, we sit back, and we just think God's going to do whatever he's going to do. Why would I even pray? For Paul, there's no conflict there. Yes, God chose. Yes, God elected. Yes, God saved. Yes, God predestined. Yes, God did all these things. These are all terms that Paul used. But also, brothers, would you pray for us? And specifically, would you pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men? Remember, everywhere Paul went, people were rising up and trying to beat him and imprison him and come against him. And so Paul basically just says, would you pray for us for fruitful ministry? Pray for us. Every now and then our, our girls um, will come to Aaron or myself asking for something. And they're smart. They're very smart. And they've learned that with different things, they should go to different parents, right? Kids are like intuitive about this. Dad says yes to this, but no to this. But mom says yes to that and no to that. And so when I want this, I'll go to dad. And when I want that, I'll go to mom. And whoever they ask ultimately reveals who they trust can give them what they want. Here's the thing about prayer. Prayer reveals who we trust in. Prayer reveals who we trust in. When we're prayerless, it means we trust in something other than God. When we're prayerless, it means we trust in how life is currently going. When we're prayerless, it means we trust in our ability, our power, our intellect. When we're prayerless, it means we trust in our society, in our economy. But as a people of God, who do we really trust in? And so what is prayer about? Prayer is primarily about two things. Number one, revealing where our trust really lies. And number two, being changed. Prayer is not primarily about changing God. Prayer is primarily about us being changed. We're the ones who need to be changed. Our hearts need to be changed. That's why we pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom, not my will. Listen, the last thing, <laughs> the last thing you want is your will. The last thing I want is my kingdom. I don't even know what a mess I'd be building and how many people I would hurt building it. But what I want is his will and his kingdom. And Paul says, pray for the gospel to be heard and prayed for deliverance from evil. And ultimately, here's what he's praying for. I thought this was so interesting because of our vision statement here at Trinity. Paul's basically saying, pray for gospel transformation. Remember, our, our vision statement is this, that we would see gospel transformation in every area of our lives. God, deliver us from evil, the evil around us and the evil within us. Gospel transformation in every area of our lives, but also in every life in our area. That the gospel might, I love the word, speed forth. Let the gospel speed out of this church, out of our lives, out of our mouths, to the communities around us, to the people around us who do not know, who are far from God, who are not established in the gospel today. So that as God establishes you and I, those who believe in Christ, for good works and for a life of prayer, what happens is we begin to lead people to Christ, pointing to Christ so that they can then be established in the gospel. Why? So that they can then be established for good works and for a life of prayer. And this is what Paul is teaching us here. We've been established. If this is true, then this should be true. If you've been established in the gospel, 
then this also is true. You've been established for good works and for a life of prayer. Let's bow our heads together this morning.